When we look out at the universe, we're so accustomed to using our own eyes that we don't often stop and think about what's out there beyond the optical part of the spectrum. On the short wavelength end, though, there's ultraviolet, X-ray, and gamma-ray light. And on the longer wavelength side, there's infrared, microwave, and radio light. These longer wavelengths are really spectacular because they can show us things. They can reveal parts of the universe that are obscured to the human eye or any optical telescope. In particular, the dust that permeates the universe, these molecules, these grains, these these particles of matter, they're in the way. They absorb shorter wavelength light, things like optical ultraviolet x-ray light, but they are transparent at longer and longer wavelengths. We can look to the center of the galaxy and we can look past the gas clouds that exist in deep space deeper and deeper towards the edge of the universe. Infrared light can reveal the cooler gas and dust that will someday form stars, can reveal details in supernova remnants and exploding stars. And in particular, if you go all the way into the radio, there's a very special line at the 21 centimeter mark that allows us to view things we could never otherwise see in the universe. What do we see and what are we learning? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. The universe is full of fascinating things to explore, and I'm so pleased to welcome as my guest on the program this month, Dr. Elizabeth Fernandez. Elizabeth has her PhD in astronomy and has done research at a number of different locations, most recently at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands, where she worked on the LOFAR array, which specializes in a particular type of infrared and radio astronomy. She is also a fabulous science communicator and her podcast, Spark Dialogue, focuses on the intersection of science, technology, and society. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. So you and I met about 16 years ago at a summer school in Italy. And although our paths have taken very different turns, I'm so pleased that science communication has brought us back together. And in particular, that we have a chance to talk about these long wavelength endeavors we're making in astronomy today. Yeah, indeed. So when we talk about 21 centimeter astronomy, to me, this is one of the most remarkable aspects of astronomy. The fact that we can take something that is a special, special transition in the simplest atom of all, in a hydrogen atom. It's just a single proton, a single electron bound together. This tiny system actually makes a large magnitude astronomical signal that we can observe and gain information from. Um, yeah, so this spe specific transition in hydrogen, it, it, it happens when the the electron and proton go from their spins being aligned, which they're kind of, you can imagine, you can kind of imagine it that they're spinning along an axis, just like a planet would be, although this is quantum mechanics, so okay, not exactly the same, but you can imagine that they're spinning along, both with their spins aligned, and they, it can go to a slightly, slightly smaller energy state where the spins are anti-aligned. And when this happens, a little photon comes out, and that photon happens with a wavelength of 21 centimeters. And the thing is, is that it's a very unlikely transition to happen. Um, it doesn't happen very often, and that's why we don't really see it in space around us. But when you're looking at really, really huge areas in the sky, and you're looking at large, large, large quantities of neutral hydrogen, then yes, you will see this signal, even though it's very unlikely for it to happen within an individual atom. When you're looking at a lot of atoms together, you actually see it quite a lot. Yeah, so this is great. I've got my thumb, I've got my proton thumb pointing up, and I've got my electron thumb because I have two hands, lucky enough for that one. <laughs> I can either point that up or down, and, and when I make a hydrogen atom, it feels like I've got a 50-50 shot 
like 50% of them are going to have the spin in the same direction, 50% of them are going to have the spin in the opposite direction. And what we're saying with this transition is all the ones where the spins go in the same direction, where, where either both my thumbs are up or both my thumbs are down, that's slightly less energetically favorable than if the spins are flipped. So if you do the math quantum mechanically and say, how long does it take for atoms that were made with their spins in the same direction, the aligned spin to flip, to be anti-aligned, it's somewhere around like 10 or 11 million years for each individual atom to make that flip transition. But when you do, we call this a spin-flip transition because that, that quantum mechanically allowed transition from the aligned state to the anti-aligned state, it always emits a photon of an extremely particular wavelength. And when you say 21 centimeters, you're actually being very kind in terms of significant <laughs> digits because <Exactly. laughs> we, we know this to like, what, like something like 20 significant digits or something ridiculous like that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. So, so if you see this spin-flip transition occur, and it's going to occur anywhere that you've made a bunch of neutral hydrogen atoms in the last 10 or 20 million years, you get a big cloud of hydrogen atoms, you make a bunch of them neutral, you're going to see that, that 21 centimeter line coming from it. Are these atoms all going to produce exactly that same signature with that super, super narrow peak? Or are there is there more information that's going to come from that signal that can teach us about the environment these atoms are in? Um, well, the cool thing about this is that you mentioned that there are something like uh, 20 significant figures in how well we know this wavelength. Um, so one thing that we can do is that since it is such at a such a specific wavelength, we can look at gas at different distances from us. And we know that the universe is expanding. And the farther away the something is, the more space in between us and that cloud of gas to expand. Um, so you can imagine if you take a if a you take a balloon, you draw a, a wavelength, a little squiggly line on it, and as you blow up the balloon, the wavelength will get longer and longer. And so this is this is very similar to what's happening with space. So the the farther away you look, the longer this wavelength will become. Uh, so when the photon is emitted, it has a wavelength of 21 centimeter, but this actually isn't what we observe because what we're looking at is actually uh, very far away. We're looking at uh, things that are, you know, a significant fraction into the history of the universe. Um, and if, if you, if you're familiar with redshifts, this is, uh, you know, a about a redshift of 10 or so. Um, so this is quite big. This is a, a, a the, the, wavelength will be a lot longer than 21 centimeter that we're actually observing. Um, and so since we know it's emitted with a wavelength of a very specific wavelength around 21 centimeters, then we observe it at a much longer wavelength. We can actually pinpoint how far back into the history of the universe when this was actually emitted. And when you're looking at the whole sky, um, of course, you we see it as flat on the sky. We see it as two-dimensional. But since you're looking at at the wavelength of what you're observing, this wavelength gives us a third dimension. So now instead of just a two-dimensional sky, you actually get a three-dimensional sky. You have the two dimensions uh, on the sky, up, down, left, and right. But then your third dimension is the wavelength of the light. And that it, it gives us, that can trans, uh, th that can mean that we're getting a three-dimensional map of what's going on in the very early universe. Well, that's that's really fascinating. I think there are a few things that that people may not appreciate about some of the things you said. One of them is about redshift, right? My my favorite analogy for thinking about redshift is to imagine a a loaf of raisin bread that I put in my imaginary like International Space Station oven, where it's the same on all sides, and there's no gravity, and you just have this big ball of dough full of raisins. As this dough leavens and bakes, the raisins 
all move away from one another. And the raisins that are farthest away from one another are going to appear to expand away from each other faster than the raisins that are closer together, but they're all going to expand from each other. That bread is like the fabric of the universe, except you can't see it. It's like if you had invisible dough. The raisins are like galaxies or clumps of matter that they're individually bound and they themselves don't expand. But what happens is they do move away from one another in the expanding universe. So as these raisins are moving away from each other, if one of them were to emit some light, that light still has to travel through the bread dough. It still has to travel through the fabric of space and so that wavelength will get stretched it will expand sort of like if you put one foot on the edge of a moving walkway and the other foot on the solid ground next to it your feet would get spread apart because the walkway itself is moving space moves like that and that causes photons to redshift or to become longer and longer wavelength the other thing that you said that's really spectacular is you said like a redshift of 10 or so. When we talk about redshift, we're basically talking about how much longer is this wavelength of light than when it was first emitted. Something at a redshift of one, for example, is twice as long as something that we see today. Things that aren't redshifted have a redshift of zero. Those are things that are emitted super nearby. You have to go out to more than 10 billion light years away to find something at a redshift of one. When you're talking about a redshift of 10, you're talking about the universe as it was when it was maybe just about 3% of its current age. You're talking about the universe as it was some 13.4 billion years ago in a universe that's only 13.8 billion years old. So when you say 21 centimeter astronomy, you're talking about 21 centimeter astronomy at a time where the earliest galaxies and the earliest quasars and really the first stars were still forming, aren't you? That's correct. That's correct, yeah. So why why is 21 centimeters why is 21 centimeter astronomy the right tool for this job to see the first galaxies as opposed to any other type of astronomy well i'm not actually saying it's the right tool i would say it's one of many tools um so when we're looking at the high redshift universe when we're look we want to look back to the first stars and the first galaxies that are forming this is a really, really hard observation to do. It's These objects are very far away, and they're very, very faint. And there's actually several different ways that we can go about looking at them. And so you mentioned uh, a 21 centimeter uh, emission, which I'll get back to at the end. But there are a few other things we can do. Um, one is, I'm sure many people have heard of this, is just trying to look for objects individually. So look for high, high redshift galaxy. And, you know, you can go on Wikipedia and search for the highest, the, the highest, uh, most distant redshift galaxy ever found, the most distant galaxy ever found. And these are talking about super, super powerful telescopes. Look out. They look out for a very, very long time at a patch of sky and they find a galaxy that's farther than any other galaxy that has been seen before. And this is an amazing observation to do. Uh, it's very hard because you have to have a very powerful telescope and you have to look for a very long time. But when you find it, you're actually seeing a specific galaxy. You can get to know what that galaxy is doing. You can understand the light within that galaxy. Um, and I think the farthest galaxy right now is at a redshift of about 11, which is only 400 million years after the Big Bang. So a significant fraction of the history of the universe has gone by since that galaxy has been around. But when you're doing these observations, it's, it's important to keep in mind that you're only seeing a small fraction of what's out there. You're only seeing the, the brightest galaxies and the galaxies that are the most common. So the fainter galaxies are going to be below your detection limit. They're going to be too dim. You won't be able to see them. And if you have a galaxy that's rare, then it might just not show up in your survey. So it's good to do these 
But you have to keep in mind that whatever you're going to find is, in fact, biased towards, you know, um, a small population of galaxies. We're not seeing the majority of star formation that's happening in the early universe because most of the star formation is probably happening in smaller galaxies. Um, there's another observation we can take, and that's looking for uh, distant gamma ray bursts. And these are uh, what happened when a star explodes at the end of its life. And we can see they're so bright that we can see them all the way across the universe. I think the most distant gamma ray burst is around a redshift of eight. So almost as far away as the uh, oldest galaxy. That's about 600 million years after the Big Bang. And that could tell you about the individual stars that are forming. But again, you're only seeing a small fraction of what's out there because that's what's bright enough that we can see. Um, another observation that I would like to talk about a little bit more because this is a, a big thing that I studied is if you imagine a, if you imagine all these galaxies and all these stars that are forming in the early universe, and they might be too faint for us to see individually, both the galaxies and the stars themselves. However, we know they're still giving out light, and we know that light must be there. So, if you look at the sun, for instance, uh, you started out the podcast saying that you know we see the majority of light in the visual because that's that our sun is giving out uh, visible light. But when we're looking at the distant universe, we can't rely on the visible anymore because of the huge redshifts we're dealing with. All that visible light, if you took our sun and put it at the at these very distant um, these very distant times, that would all be redshifted, and we would instead see it in the infrared. So we could look at the infrared sky and see if there's some sort of background light that you can see. Um, and perhaps this might be a clue as to how many stars are forming in the early universe. And then finally, you have the 21 centimeter mission, which we already talked about. With the 21 centimeter, it is talking about a slightly different population because we're not actually seeing the galaxies themselves. What we're seeing is the space around the galaxies. It's the, the stuff that's still neutral. So if you're close to a galaxy and that galaxy has a lot of hot stars, those hot stars are giving off ultraviolet light and that ultraviolet light is separating the electrons and the protons in the hydrogen around it. So all the hydrogen is becoming ionized. When you go far enough away from these galaxies, then you'll get back into neutral hydrogen and that's where you see the 21 centimeter. So the 21 centimeter is sort of like a complementary observation to all of these. And that's good to keep in mind when you're looking at the 21 centimeter line, you're looking at either stuff that's far away from a galaxy that's hot, or you're looking at hydrogen in the very early universe before there was a galaxy there to ionize it. So that's incredible because what you're what you're saying is we have to take this multi-pronged approach if we want to understand what's going on at these early times with these distant galaxies and these star forming regions and the gas around them because no observation by itself will reveal the entire universe. If we are lucky enough to see something in the optical part of the spectrum, we're only going to see the brightest and most luminous objects. We're also only going to see the ones that are maybe most serendipitously aligned that happen to have less than average amounts of light blocking gas and dust in between us and them. Because when you go to these early times, the universe hasn't even formed enough stars. Remember, if we go back about 380,000 years after the Big Bang, that was when it finally became cool enough that this ionized plasma of the early universe, the atomic nuclei and the electrons, could stably form neutral atoms. But then that poses an extra problem. Sure, neutral atoms are good for gravitating together and forming stars and galaxies and good things like that, but they're also lousy at letting light through. If you try and shine light through neutral atoms, they're going to block that, particularly if they bind together in molecules or large clumps or stuff like that. Uh, the observational problem, if we look in the visible part of the spectrum, is called the Gunn-Peterson trough, because there is this neutral 
the population of neutral atoms there that block pretty much all of the light of a certain wavelength beyond a redshift of about six or so. So if you want to see past that, you need to either get lucky and find a patch of gas that's more ionized than normal, or you need some sort of artificial magnification, like a serendipitous alignment with a gravitational lens, or you need something like the ability to look in longer wavelengths where that light blocking dust isn't such a dramatic effect. This is why a telescope like the James Webb Space Telescope will be able to see galaxies out past where something like Hubble has found the record setter GN-Z11, like you alluded to. This is why gamma ray bursts are sort of fundamentally limited, even though they're brighter than these galaxies are even though they're transient events, so you could clearly see where one shows up where it wasn't there before, its gamma rays get blocked by the intervening matter as well. But when you go to these longer wavelengths, you can see things that you can't necessarily see in these shorter wavelengths that are interfered with by the dust. One of the things that's amazing, though, about 21-centimeter astronomy is we're talking about a time when the universe is already hundreds of millions of years old. We're not talking about right when you made neutral atoms for the first time. That stuff is already still at a redshift of about 1100, not at a redshift of 10. So 21 centimeters, if we're talking about that, that would be a wavelength that's already on the order of maybe 200 meters. That's not something our telescopes, even our best, biggest radio telescopes, are capable of observing today. You have to go to when you formed stars. And what you said was, I thought, just amazing and super, super compelling that, hey, you have these regions where you form stars. And these bright, hot stars, one of the things they do, just like ultraviolet radiation can ionize atoms, well, the light from these stars, which can be millions of times as luminous from some of the most massive stars as the light coming from our own sun, this light can ionize and kick out winds, the atoms all around it for many, many light years, not just not just a few light years, but we're talking thousands, tens of thousands, or even hundreds of thousands of light years. When you get to the edge of that giant bubble, though, that edge of that multi-thousand light year bubble, that's where you start to have the electrons fall back back onto the neutral atoms. And so when you form new neutral atoms, that's where you get this 21 centimeter emission because you're making neutral hydrogen. And over the millions of years that go by, you'll get this transition and that will give you something you can see. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's not necessarily hydrogen that will be, that has come back together to be a neutral at, uh, atom again. Uh, so, when you're looking at the distant uh, universe, so we're looking at the really, really distant hydrogen, and uh, this is stuff that has been neutral and nothing has ionized it yet. There has been no star around to rip that electron off a away from the hydrogen atom. And so once that, once it is ionized, sure, it might recombine again, but uh, it's, as as more stars are forming and as more galaxies are forming, there's more and more, uh, more and more ultraviolet photons and more and more energetic photons to keep those hydrogens ionized. And so what happens? This is actually a really interesting part of the history of the universe. It's a time called reionization, and it's when all of the hydrogen in the universe went from neutral to ionized. And when you think about that, that's an enormous amount of energy that had to be put into the universe in order to do this. Um, for each, every single hydrogen to have enough energy in it to have that electron torn off of it. Um, and this is actually one of the reasons that we know that there must be star formation happening at these high redshifts, is because there had to be something that's putting out enough uh, ultraviolet photons to be able to do this. And one of the most likely candidates for this is to form stars. 
Well, that's great. I mean, that's that's what you want to do. So what you're saying is not only like we see locally, we see nearby when you make hydrogen atoms for, you know, not necessarily the first time, but when you make neutral hydrogen atoms for, let's say, the nth time, uh, you can get this 21 centimeter emission around star forming regions. But you're saying also in the early universe, when we look back to these extremely high red shifts, um, one of the most interesting things that we can look for is where this 21 centimeter emission, because you should have a constant background emission at early times from all of the neutral atoms around, where you see dips in that, where you see gaps in that, where you see the absence or a dearth of this radiation, uh, that tells you that that's a location where you actually have formed a lot of stars because now these atoms aren't neutral anymore. They are ionized over there. Is that is that maybe a, a further part of the story? Yeah, like, if you imagine it, if you can, like, run a movie of what the history of the universe would look like, and you're looking at just 21 centimeter emission, you can imagine at very early times, the entire sky is just one color. It's all tw giving out 21 centimeter emission. And then as you move forward, you see that first star turn on. And it ionizes the region around it. So all of a sudden you see a hole in your 21 centimeter emission. A nice big bubble starts to form. And then another star turns on and then another star turns on. And as those stars turn on, they each have their own individual bubble that start to get bigger and bigger. And as more stars begin to form, all those bubbles get bigger. They start to overlap. And pretty soon when you get to the latest times, all, all you see are bubbles. You don't see 21 centimeter anymore. So the 21 centimeter is completely gone. You just see bubbles that are have completely overlapped now. And so the universe looks completely different than what, what you started out with. Jeez, so you're telling me Sir Mix-a-Lot had it right all those years ago, <laughs> and every hydrogen atom is begging for a piece of that bubble. <laughs> That's, yeah, I guess you could look at it that way. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that, that's a terrible joke. I won't make that one again. Um <laughs> But this is this is really a remarkable part of the story then, because um, what you're saying is this technique using 21 centimeter astronomy is actually going, it's actually capable of letting us see what no other type of observing will let us see. It's going to allow us to see the epic before we had the first stars. It's going to allow us, maybe if we're lucky, to even recognize a difference between where we have a denser clump of matter than where we have a shallower clump of matter because the denser clump of matter should have more hydrogen gas in there even if it's neutral that emits more 21 centimeter emissions and by looking at a specific redshift for example saying 21 centimeters okay let's multiply that by 15 and look at a redshift of 15 or look at a redshift of 20 or 30 or 50 or 100, we could actually make a map in principle of the pre-star forming universe. Yeah, and that's what's so cool about 21 centimeter is that it allows you to see this period of time that we're not seeing in other observation, and it allows you to see the gas, not the stars. And so it's really complementary to a lot of the other observations that are being done. So it's it's super powerful. It gives us an opportunity to see reionization, which is a really interesting uh, thing to be looking at right now. We don't know much about it, so everything that we can learn adds to the a piece of, of to the picture. You know, there was a, a study that came out pretty recently in the last few years that claimed um, that they actually saw this uh, redshift-dependent gap in 21-centimeter emission, where they claimed that from a time when the universe was between about 180 million to 260 million years old, they saw this dip in 21 centimeter emission. And even though this was really at the limit of what the instruments could detect, and people still argue over whether this is a robust detection or not, um, this could potentially be a hint of, hey, if we see this dip in 21 centimeter emission, does that mean we're seeing when the first stars are actually turning on? I don't know if you've seen that study or have an opinion about it, but in principle, that's at least the right way to do it, isn't it? 
honestly, I, I, I vaguely remember this paper, but I, I don't know about enough about it to talk about it in detail. Um, but what I w- will say is that um, it's, it's just very difficult to do this observation. It's um, since the farther away you look, the smaller the signal will be. And so a, a big part of part of the problem is looking at all the foregrounds and trying to take apart, you know, what other light might be coming in at that wavelength that's not 21 centimeter, but it looks like 21 centimeter. And that's a huge problem with LOFAR. Um, We have light from our galaxy. We have light from all the galaxies between us and that signal, which when you're looking over the entire history of the universe is a lot of light and you really have to understand what's happening there in order to remove those foregrounds before you can make a determination. And so when you're looking at actually what is these first stars, uh, the farther back you go, it's going to be, it's going to be harder and harder. And it's, that's why it's, the team has been working so hard on this and it's still, still difficult to say, you know, what exactly is being seen. No. And I think that's super important. I think another thing that people don't necessarily appreciate because the 21 centimeter line in principle in a lab is such a narrow peak that I think people don't often appreciate that when you look at this line, when you look at these atoms in an astrophysical environment, um, astrophysical environments are a lot messier than this. That narrow peaked line actually gets broadened tremendously by two effects that are both at play. One is by the fact that molecules are moving, that atoms are moving, that you have these kinetic effects, and that even if you had something where if it were perfectly stationary, it would give you this incredibly narrow line or this incredibly narrow peak signal to look for. The fact that things move at tens or hundreds or thousands of kilometers a second, which is already getting up to, you know, a significant fraction of the speed of light, 0.1%. 1% in that range, um, that broadens the line tremendously. So it's very difficult to say, oh, this is the unambiguous signal we're seeing of 21 centimeter astronomy because you have all of this intervening gas and material that's also contaminating that. And you have the fact that your thin, narrow peak is actually broadened and spread out. And another effect you have is the effect of thermal emission, the fact that this gas is not at absolute zero and entirely not just motionless, but not not vibrating or moving around. The fact that this gas is at a certain temperature, that will also broaden the signal you see. So even though in principle, this might be a brilliant way to probe what's going on out there, you not only have all the intervening stuff between you and the object you're looking at to contend with, you have the fact that it's happening in a messy astrophysical environment with kinetic and thermal motions that could be confounding what you think you're seeing versus what's actually going on. Yeah, and you're exactly right. And there's actually another type of line broadening mechanism that you have to take into account, and that's the fact that these galaxies aren't um these galaxies aren't by themselves they're in groups they're in clusters and they'll be gravitationally interacting with each other so even though in general the universe is expanding farther and farther away just because something is uh at a reg we measure something at a redshift of say eight doesn't mean it's actually at a redshift of eight because it might be actually moving towards a galaxy close to it and that that movement of the galaxy isn't actually having to do with the expansion of the universe it has to do with its own motion that's being attracted to a, a nearby galaxy and so you have to take that into account as well um and so it is possible to model all of this and i mean that's a, a lot of theoretical astrophysicists and observationalists are looking at ways to model this and it's possible. It's really, really hard. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of unknowns that you have to take into account. But part of this, like what you mentioned about the temperature of the gas, yeah, that's going to make the line wider. But it also might tell us something about the temperature of the gas. And that's kind of cool that we can learn something new about it as well. 
No, and what I love about this is you are always at risk. Whenever you have one observation from one technique, you're at the risk that something could be contaminating this. You you mentioned that, you know, oh, we maybe have like a small population of galaxies out where the furthest one is at a redshift of 11. And what's hilarious, if you like black humor about this, is actually we have one galaxy at a redshift of 11, and we have a bunch of other galaxy candidates at redshifts of like 9, 10, and 11 that have all gone away because these were things where we had one photometric observation that indicated, oh, this is a galaxy at extremely high redshift. And when we went to do follow-up observations with a different technique like spectroscopy or in a different set of wavelengths, we found that that galaxy wasn't there or we found that it was a foreground object that was just very intrinsically red. One of the things I love about looking to the earliest stages in the universe is that we have multiple ways of making these observations and cross-correlating them. So I think this is a great time to bring up some of the work that you've been involved with with LOFAR, because in addition to looking just at 21 centimeter astronomy, we can also look at infrared astronomy to understand what's going on in the early universe. That's right. Yeah, and like I mentioned before, the foregrounds when we're looking at 21 centimeter are very challenging. And the foregrounds are, when you're looking in the infrared sky are very challenging. But the challenges are slightly different. They're a slightly different foreground. And so the hope is when you look at more than one observations at the same time, different types of observations, and correlate them or don't correlate them, um, then you begin to see, okay, is this actually the signal I expect to see at the high redshift, or is it something that's closer to me? Um, yeah, so the the a, a little bit more background about what, the, what we're looking at in the infrared then. So I mentioned that if you have a very bright star, it's emitting something in the, it's emitting light in the ultraviolet, and this will be redshifted into the infrared. So the idea is, okay, let's look at the background sky in the infrared. And I'm sure you've probably heard of the cosmic microwave background. Well, this is something similar. It's just in the infrared. It's the cosmic infrared background. And this isn't the same, right? This isn't the leftover glow from the Big no. Bang that's in the infrared part of the spectrum. This is something that comes from a very different source. Exactly. So it's it's made up of a lot of things. And one of the things that we expect it to be made up of is the remnant light from these early stars. Because we, ex like I said, we know that these stars have to have formed. We see evidence that these stars existed. However, uh, we don't see them directly in most cases. Um, so this light has to be redshifted, so it has to make up some fraction of the sky in the infrared. But the problem is when you're looking at things that are really, really distant in the distant uh, universe, you have every single foreground between you and that observation to take into account. You have our galaxy, you have other galaxies, and other galaxies, sometimes we see them, but sometimes they're faint enough that we don't see them. And so how many small galaxies between us and them do we expect? That's a big question in, uh, in astronomy that people don't necessarily have the answer to right now. Um, then there's also uh, zodiacal light, uh, which is light reflecting uh, uh, the sun's light in our, within our own si solar system, reflecting off dust. And you, you might see it if you go outside, you might see this cone of light near the horizon. And it looks really cool, but it's kind of a pain because <laughs> we don't have a very good model how to take this into account in the infrared. And so there's all these different things that we have to take into account. But if you s subtract all that all that out, there's something left over. Now, what is this something left over in the infrared sky? And people have been debating this for decades now. <laughs> um, and some people say, okay, it's uh, what you call uh, intra-halo stars. So when you have a galaxy over the course of the galaxy's lifetime, it gravitationally interacts with other galaxies around it. And every time it comes close to another galaxy, some stars get kicked off and they end up wandering the expanses of the universe by themselves. Um, 
Now, how much of this is light that we actually see in the infrared? Well, it might actually be a lot. There might actually be quite a few stars that have been kicked out of galaxies. Um, and that's something we have to model. Um, so that's a, a potential. Um, but there might also be uh, light from these very distant stars as well. And so the idea is if you take the light in the infrared and you correlate it with light in the 21 centimeter, all of these foregrounds I talked about are going to be different problems in each of those. But if you see a correlation or a lack of correlation that makes sense of what we would expect for early stars, then maybe that's actually what you're seeing is the first stars and not something in between us and them. So when we talk about correlations between a 21 centimeter signal and an infrared signal, what we're not doing is we're saying, okay, we're going to look at the same object or the same region of sky and say, we're looking for a 21 centimeter signal, we're looking for an infrared signal, and when we see them co-located, that's where we know this is happening. What we're doing instead is saying, this is the signal we expect a star forming region or a region without stars or a region that's collapsing down to form stars. This is what we expect the 21 centimeter signal will look like in this region and in the surrounding region. And then if that's the story, we expect this other type of signal to show up in and around this region in the infrared. And where we see the specific infrared signal or a lack of a specific infrared signal correlated in space and in time. So at the right redshift, at the right right ascension and declination, right at the right location in three-dimensional space and along the line of sight from that point to us, when we see this anticipated signal in both the infrared and in 21 centimeters, that's where we can start to map out, hey, what's going on here? What are the stars doing here? What is the gas doing here? What is the intergalactic medium doing here? Yeah, and so what you would expect to see, let's say if you take a map of a portion of the sky, if you see a place where 21 centimeter is really strong, that means you're looking at a place that has neutral hydrogen. That means there aren't stars forming there. If you're looking at a place where there's a lot of infrared light, that means that there are stars forming there and there's not neutral hydrogen. So the idea is if you line them up one to one, you should see an anti-correlation. So one is bright here, the other one is, is dim here and vice versa. Yeah, the, but the problem is you mentioned that uh, 21 centimeter is a line emission. So we can make a three-dimensional map with redshift. We can, but you can't actually do that with infrared because we're not looking for a line. Uh, it's, it's a combination of things. We have the Lyman-Alpha line, which is a line, but it's actually quite broad. And plus you have the black body radiation from the star. Plus you have all of the light that's coming from the nebula around the star. So it's not a line, it's actually a continuum. And so you can't form a map like you can with the 21 centimeter. But what you can do is you can correlate either the entire 21 centimeter sky with what you're seeing in the infrared, or you could do slices of the 21 centimeter sky with the entire infrared and see like how fast, how fast is the universe being ionized? How fast is the universe forming stars? And it's, it's, it is tricky because it's not a one-to-one -one correlation, but you could do a lot of tricks to try to get around that. So one of the things I'm curious about, because we're talking about something happening so long ago, and we know how redshift works, is if this is infrared light back at these early times, and the universe is expanding, and this light is redshifting, what does that mean we're looking at today in terms of wavelength? One of the challenges that I know of for infrared astronomy is there are only a few what we call atmospheric windows to look at in the infrared. So if we're looking at something that's like a telescope array or an array of detectors on the ground, all that light has to go from its original source of, you know, where it originates all the way at a high redshift through the expanding universe and then through Earth's atmosphere. So what is it that we're actually observing versus what was emitted? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so the what's actually being emitted 
is those photons that are bright enough and powerful enough, energetic enough to ionize hydrogen, and those photons that are a little bit less energetic enough. So, um, uh, so we're really talking about photons that are emitted in the ultraviolet part of the spectrum. The ultraviolet and the visible light, yes. These are very, these are going to be chances. We, I mean, we don't know what the first stars are like, but we figure that they're big. <laughs> they could be ten to a hundred times the size of our sun. We're not sure, but but we do know that they have to be energetic enough to ionize hydrogen. They have to be because we know that the universe is has been ionized. Um, so they're going to be bright. They're going to be emitting very powerful uh, energetic photons. So, so what we're seeing is we we can't see that light directly because you know if it's surrounded by by gas, dust, by atoms, uh, that's the sort of thing that's going to be actively ionized. But we can see the effects that those photons have, or are we actually seeing the few that make it all the way through just redshifted into the infrared and coming to Earth? So we're, what we're seeing is we're seeing everything that's being reprocessed in some way. Like like you say, there's a lot of stuff in the way. So it's going to be, we're going to see the things that have been, uh, that have already ionized some of the hydrogen around them or been reprocessed by the dust if there's dust. Um, very early, you probably won't have as much dust, but you might have some. Um, and, and all of this reprocessed light, we're going to, if, if you were around the star, you would see it just short of what it takes to ionize hydrogen. But what we see it here on Earth, since it's redshifted, we see it about one to four microns. That gives you an idea. Okay, so that's still in what we call the near-infrared part of the spectrum. That's still yes. where we we can do this here on Earth, as opposed to having to go to space to do it, which is, for example, why we're launching the James Webb Space Telescope, because we don't want just the near-infrared stuff where you have these atmospheric windows. We want to get the mid-infrared and the far-infrared stuff. Right. Um, so that's something that we can get. Um, you know, and, and start to see these things that maybe from the early universe were emitted at longer wavelengths further into the visible and infrared. But what we're seeing with an observatory like LOFAR here on Earth is we're seeing things that maybe were ultraviolet or on the blue end of visible light when they were emitted. Yes, they slam into things and interact, but that light also still continues on because, you know, conservation of momentum is a real thing and things heat up and re-radiate. Um, and so that's the radiation we're getting here. And we're able to actually, to the best of our ability, reconstruct what was happening at those early redshifts from that light that we absorb here. What what sort of amazing challenge is that to extract all the things that happen over 13 plus billion years of light travel to make sure that what we're saying this signal is has anything to do with what it actually is? Yeah, um, uh, just to be clear, LOFAR isn't looking at the redshifted light that's from that's that's been ionizing the uh stars it's looking at at the time it's emitted it's 21 centimeters long um ah oh, okay yeah so what we're actually looking at with lofar is is significantly longer so if we're looking at a redshift of 10 that's 11 times 21 centimeters okay so that's lofar is the 21 centimeter yeah LOFAR so, is the 21 centimeter observatory yeah and so one thing i can mention is um if we're looking at uh, the observations of the near infrared, um, and and also the 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 far infrared is also interesting as well. Um, you mentioned that uh, there's there's of course lots of stuff, other stuff going on longer. And if you look at the far infrared, part of that is, that's also interesting is looking at galaxies that are a little bit closer to us, but still quite far away. Let's say a redshift of two to four. Um, and at this time, we don't know a lot of what's going on as far as how much dust is within these galaxies. And if you know how much dust is within these galaxies, this tells you a lot about star formation history and stuff like that. 
I don't know if you want to go into this because this is might be a little off topic. But um, well, it's okay. I mean, what what this is really fascinating for is we are so used to seeing these big, beautiful pictures of like Hubble Deep Fields or or these, you know, oh look at all these distant galaxies. Look at what the universe is full of, and that's that's true. An, an optical observatory like Hubble has taught us what the universe looks like, but it sounds like one of the most amazing things that we're learning from infrared observations and from 21 centimeter observations is the next step in that story, which is not just what does the universe look like, but how did the universe grow up? How did the universe go from having no stars to forming the first stars to ionizing the universe to reionizing the universe to forming these small galaxies to how these individual galaxies merged and grew up and how the dust evolved into them and how they came to become like the populations of galaxies we see today. These are the observations we need to make if we want to tell that story and understand the story that the universe is telling us about itself. Yeah, and it's it's really fascinating because we don't know what the first stars were like. We don't know they could have been massive. They could have not been massive. Um, we don't know how many stars are forming. We don't know if they're forming by themselves at first or if they're forming in galaxies or in groups. Um, there might also be all sorts of weird stuff that's going on when you're looking at the first stars. Like um, if they're really massive, they might do really weird things when they end their lives. Like they might directly collapse into a black hole. Or they might have this gigantic explosion called a parent stability supernova that completely explodes the star. And these are stuff we don't, or sorry, these are things we don't see in our universe around us right now. So we might see all sorts of weird things uh, with these first stars. And there's a lot of unanswered questions we have as well. Like, for example, these first stars are forming in an environment where the only thing that's around is hydrogen and helium and a tiny little bit of lithium. And we know that now, of course, we see all sorts of elements. We see carbon and silicon and iron, and all of that was formed in stars or in explosions of stars later on. So we know that those first stars had to start that process of forming all the elements that we see today. So how did that get going you know, how, and how the most importantly, like, why or why was the lack or how was the lack of all of these elements in the star formation process? How did that affect how these stars uh, formed and how they went through their lives? No, and that's so important because all the things that you've said we don't know, like we do, we have theories about what should happen, and we have models, and we have simulations, and we have, like you said earlier, we have good reasons to believe that even though the average mass of a star today is about 40% the mass of the sun, the average population three star, where a population three star is a star made out of just hydrogen and helium, or 99.999999% <laughs> hydrogen and helium because it was made of pristine stuff left over after the Big Bang. Um, we've never seen one of those. We know, in theory, that they should be on average about 10 times the mass of the sun. We know, in theory, how they should cool and that they should have problems cooling because molecular hydrogen should be the primary way that they cool, and that's very inefficient compared to carbon and oxygen and other what we call metals in astronomy, where a metal is anything heavier than helium because astronomers are not very smart about the periodic table. Um, <laughs> like we have, we have a whole lot of things that we think happened but it's very important in any scientific field to be very emphatic that only with observations and measurements can we be certain until we make those measurements until we see those population three stars for the first time all we can do is say this is what we expect but that's not the same as what we've already seen yeah, and even when you do make observations, you have to be very careful that those observations are indeed what you think they are and not something else. <laughs> They're not lying to you. 
And that's the hard part. <laughs> and that's that's a problem that I think everyone has to face. We we worry about this all the time in physics, in astronomy. We worry about our systematic errors. We worry about the sources of possible confusion. And we worry in particular about a signal that can mimic the exact type of signal that we're looking for. And when it comes to a messy, messy environment that we're looking at some 30, 40 billion light years away with the expanding universe, um, that's where it's most important of all to make sure we've got it right. Yeah, and uh, I really am admired by the people who do actually look at the observations and are actually subtracting out everything that we think is in between us and them because they have amazing patience. <laughs> well, I would I would like to ask you before we wrap this up, I'd like to ask you what you think the future of infrared and 21 centimeter astronomy holds for humanity. And I'd like to ask you what you would like to see as far as a big discovery that you're looking forward to? Um, well, I think that the observations people are trying to do right now, they're incredibly difficult, but I think they are possible. Um, and I think that's important to remember. And it might be a while before we can figure things out, but eventually we will be able to figure out if what we're seeing, if the light we're seeing is actually from these very early generations of stars. And then once that happens, then things get really fun because we get to tell what what were the properties of these stars. Um, but, I mean, what is this on a bigger scale? Uh, I think that this begins to tell us a little bit about where we're from, part of our cosmic origins. You know, we're, we're always searching for what our place is in the universe, and this is a small piece of that puzzle. It uh, begins to say, you know, where did the elements that make up my body, where did they start out? How did they start out? Um, and how did this lead to our planet forming? How did this lead to other planets forming? Of all the big things we may discover in the future, which one, which of the big questions or which of the big discoveries are you looking forward to the most? I would be very interested to see what exactly the first stars are, are like. And it, w it would be interesting to see if they are different from what we see around us today. And what I think would be the most exciting is if some of these stars are different enough that we are, we do begin to see some different physics out there, or we begin to see some different results. Like if we saw uh, a pair instability supernova, or if we get a clue as to where do the giant black holes that, inhabit the center of galaxies where do they come from we don't really understand that question yet and i think it has something to do with understanding where the first stars are coming from and how they go about forming black holes um and yeah i think that would be really exciting to know um to see if there's anything different that we can learn about our universe that we can't see in our local universe right now well, thank you, Elizabeth. Those are those are fascinating questions, and maybe I'll have to uh, maybe I'll have to have future podcast topics on a few of them because these are these are some of the biggest questions of all. And even though, like we said, we have theories, we have ideas, and we have some circumstantial evidence for what things might be, there's no substitute for making those direct observations and answering those questions about what the universe is like and how it grew up to be like it is today once and for all thank you for being my guest today um can i ask you if you have any uh, parting messages for our listeners just don't give up just keep your imagination open as to what might be out there and just be patient to see what might be out there and perhaps one day we'll figure it all out <laughs> Thank you for being my guest, Dr. Elizabeth Fernandez. You can check her out online at Spark Dialogue. She's got a fantastic podcast, and I know you can follow her on Twitter at Spark Dialogue, D-I-A-L-O-G, no U-E. The Starts With a Bang podcast is brought to you through the generous support of our Patreon supporters. I'd like to thank everyone donating to our podcast and donating to Starts With a Bang at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to... 
Samir Kumar, Robert Hansen, Aaron Weiss, Dominic Turpin, Tim Graham, Pavel Zuzelski, Denier, John Van Balaguyan, John Methot, Matt Rumel, Thomas Sola, Frank, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, Laird WH, Alexander Marius, David Uhl, Patrick Dennis, John Kozura, Flo, Jose Enrique, Daniel Nadasi, Paulina Barron, Elver Sena Sosa, Nick Del Roy, Gaijin, DGE, Sean Foley, Rafael Wojcik, Mark Armstrong, Eric Brown, Marcelo Barnaba, Danny, Jens Kroger, Andrew T. Douglas, Richard Jousey, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Andrew Jason, James Nance, Sidney Atwood, Benjamin Turner, Charles Buchanan, Kelly Kudrick, John Seal, Pierre Franson, Randall Slimak, Stefan Berniger, Hannah Kahn, Mark Bloor, Philip Radilovic, Ken Blackman, Fraser Kane, Tom Van Scotter, Darren Redfern, Dana Bridges, David Taschioni, Jerry Wilterding, Jeffrey Kidd, Kevin Barnes, Glenn McDavid, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Braxton Thomason, Richard Schwartz, Dick Pills, Brainwise, Michael Lewis, Frederick Y. Martello, Mark Langston, Tomas All, Steve Schaber, Mike, Ahmed Lee Kamsi, Radek Nesbida, Joseph Dvorak, Nathan Hanna, and David Krumpotic. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and I'll see you next time here for more Starts With a Bang. 